Section 18 of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. He lay in his lodgings that night, but went away early in the morning, leaving me a letter in which he repeated all he had said, recommended the care of the child, and desired of me that, as he had remitted to me the offer of a thousand pistoles, which I would have given him for the recompense of his charges and trouble with the Jew, and had given it me back, so he desired I would allow him to oblige me to set apart that thousand pistoles, with its improvement for the child and for its education, earnestly pressing me to secure that little portion for the abandoned orphan when I should think fit, as he was sure I would, to throw away the rest upon something as worthless as my sincere friend in Paris. He concluded with moving me to reflect, with the same regret as he did, on our follies we had committed together, asked me forgiveness for being the aggressor in the fact, and forgave me everything he said, but the cruelty of refusing him, which he owned he could not forgive me so heartily as he should do, because he was satisfied it was an injury to myself, would be an introduction to my ruin, and that I would seriously repent of it. He foretold some fatal things which he said he was well assured I should fall into, and that at last I would be ruined by a bad husband, bid me be the more wary that I might render him a false prophet, but to remember that if ever I came into distress I had a fast friend at Paris, who would not upbraid me with the unkind things past, but would be always ready to return me good for evil. This letter stunned me. I could not think it possible for any one that had not dealt with the devil to write such a letter, for he spoke of some particular things afterwards would befall me with such an assurance that it frighted me beforehand, and when those things did come to pass, I was persuaded he had some more than human knowledge. In a word, his advices to me to repent were very affectionate, his warnings of evil to happen to me were very kind, and his promises of assistance, if I wanted him, were so generous that I have seldom seen the like, and though I did not at first set much by that part, because I looked upon them as what might not happen, and as what was impossible to happen at that time. Yet all the rest of his letter was so moving that it left me very melancholy, and I cried four and twenty hours after, almost without ceasing, about it, and yet even all this while, whatever it was that bewitched me, I had not one serious wish that I had taken him. I wished heartily, indeed, that I could have kept him with me, but I had a mortal aversion to marrying him, or, indeed, anybody else, but formed a thousand wild notions in my head that I was yet gay enough, and young and handsome enough, to please a man of quality, and that I would try my fortune at London, come of it what would. Thus, blinded by my own vanity, I threw away the only opportunity I then had to have effectually settled my fortunes, and secured them for this world. 
and I am a memorial to all that shall read in my story, a standing monument of the madness and destruction which pride and infatuation from hell run us into. How ill our passions guide us, and how dangerously we act when we follow the dictates of an ambitious mind. I was rich and beautiful and agreeable, and not yet old. I had known something of the influence I had had upon the fancies of men, even of the highest rank. I never forgot that the prince had said, with an ecstasy, that I was the finest woman in France. I knew I could make a figure at London, and how well I could grace that figure. I was not at a loss how to behave, and having already been adored by princes, I thought of nothing less than of being mistress to the king himself back to my immediate circumstances at that time. I got over the absence of my honest merchant, but slowly at first. It was with infinite regret that I let him go at all, and when I read the letter he left I was quite confounded. As soon as he was out of call and irrecoverable, I would have given half I had in the world for him back again. My notion of things changed in an instant, and I called myself a thousand fools for casting myself upon a life of scandal and hazard, when after the shipwreck of virtue, honour, and principle, and sailing at the utmost risk, in the stormy seas of crime and abominable levity, I had a safe harbour presented, and no heart to cast anchor in it. His predictions terrified me. His promises of kindness, if I came to distress, melted me into tears, but frighted me with the apprehensions of ever coming into such distress, and filled my head with a thousand anxieties and thoughts how it should be possible for me, who had now such a fortune, to sink again into misery. Then the dreadful scene of my life, when I was left with my five children, etc., as I have related, represented itself again to me, and I sat considering what measures I might take to bring myself to such a state of desolation again, and how I should act to avoid it. But these things wore off gradually. As to my friend the merchant, he was gone, and gone irrecoverably, for I durst not follow him to Paris for the reasons mentioned above. Again I was afraid to write to him to return lest he should have refused, as I verily believed he would. So I sat and cried intolerably for some days. Nay, I may say for some weeks, but I say it wore off gradually, and as I had a pretty deal of business for managing my effects, the hurry of that particular part served to divert my thoughts, and in part to wear out the impressions which had been made upon my mind. I had sold my jewels, all but the fine diamond ring which my gentleman the jeweller used to wear, and this at proper times I wore myself, as also the diamond necklace which the prince had given me, and a pair of extraordinary earrings worth about six hundred pistoles, the other, which was a fine casket he left me at his going to Versailles in a small case with some rubies and emeralds, etc., I say I sold them at the Hague for seven thousand six hundred pistoles. I had received all the bills which the merchant had helped me to at Paris, 
and with the money I brought in with me they made up thirteen thousand nine hundred pistoles more, so that I had in ready money and in account in the bank at Amsterdam above one and twenty thousand pistoles, besides jewels, and how to get this treasure to England was my next care. The business I had had now with a great many people for receiving such large sums and selling jewels of such considerable value gave me opportunity to know and converse with several of the best merchants of the place, so that I wanted no direction now how to get my money remitted to England. Applying, therefore, to several merchants that I might neither risk it all on the credit of one merchant nor suffer any single man to know the quantity of money I had. I say, applying myself to several merchants, I got bills of exchange payable in London for all my money. The first bills I took with me, the second bills I left in trust, in case of any disaster at sea, in the hands of the first merchant, him to whom I was recommended by my friend from Paris. Having thus spent nine months in Holland, refused the best offer ever woman in my circumstances had, parted unkindly and indeed barbarously with the best friend and honestest man in the world, got all my money in my pocket and a bastard in my belly, I took shipping at the Brill in the packet-boat, arrived safe at Harwich, where my woman Amy was come by my direction to meet me. I would willingly have given ten thousand pounds of my money to have been rid of the burden I had in my belly, as above, but it could not be. So I was obliged to bear with that part, and get rid of it by the ordinary method of patience and a hard travail. I was above the contemptible usage that women in my circumstances oftentimes meet with. I had considered all that beforehand, and having sent Amy beforehand, and remitted her money to do it, she had taken me a very handsome house near Charing Cross, and hired me two maids and a footman, who she had put in a good livery, and having hired a glass coach and four horses, she came with them, with a manservant to Harwich, to meet me, and had been there near a week before I came, so I had nothing to do but to go away to London to my own house, where I arrived in very good health, and where I passed for a French lady, with a title. My first business was to get all my bills accepted, which, to cut the story short, were all both accepted and currently paid. I then resolved to take me a country lodging somewhere near the town, to be incognito till I was brought to bed, which appearing in such a figure, and having such an equipage, I easily managed without anybody's offering the usual insults of parish inquiries. I did not appear in my new house for some time, and afterwards I thought fit for particular reasons to quit that house, and not to come to it at all, but take handsome large apartments in the Pall Mall, and a house out of which was a private door into the king's garden by the permission of the chief gardener, who had lived in the house. I had now all my effects secured, but my money being my great concern at that time, I found it a difficulty how to dispose of it, so as to bring me in an annual interest. However, in some time I got a substantial safe mortgage for fourteen thousand pounds, 
Hawkins, by the assistance of the famous Sir Robert Clayton, for which I had an estate of £1,800 a year bound to me, and had £700 per annum interest for it. This, with some other securities, made me a very handsome estate of above a thousand pounds a year, enough, one would think, to keep any woman in England from being a whore. I lay in, in my new abode, about four miles from London, and brought a fine boy into the world, and according to my promise sent an account of it to my friend at Paris, the father of it, and in the letter told him how sorry I was for his going away, and did as good as intimate that if he would come once more to see me, I should use him better than I had done. He gave me a very kind and obliging answer, but took not the least notice of what I had said of his coming over. So I found my interest lost there for ever. He gave me joy of the child, and hinted that he hoped I would make good what he had begged for the poor infant, as I had promised, and I sent him word again that I would fulfil his order to a tittle, and such a fool, and so weak I was in this last letter notwithstanding what I have said of his not taking notice of my invitation, as to ask his pardon, almost for the usage I gave him at Rotterdam, and stooped so low as to expostulate with him for not taking notice of my inviting him to come to me again, as I had done, and which was still more, went so far as to make a second sort of offer to him, telling him, almost in plain words, that if he would come over now, I would have him. But he never gave me the least reply to it at all, which was as absolute a denial to me as he was ever able to give. So I sat down, I cannot say contented, but vexed heartily that I had made the offer at all for he had, as I may say, his full revenge of me in scorning to answer, and to let me twice ask that of him which he with so much importunity begged of me before. End of section 18